my brother. How's it going, my friend? Dude, I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember what it was like back in 1996 for you. <laughs> and, and, and what it was like as I watched you brave one of the worst winter hell weeks I've ever seen in my entire life. Do you remember yeah. that hell week, brother? No, it, it, one, I think if we get a, I don't, I was in 203, not uh -huh. 205. So if you want to, oh, that's so right. I, that's your, you're a summer hell week, right? Yeah. So I was a summer that's hell week right. and I was there with Greg Zarnecki and Ron Tutrell. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep, yeah, that's so, right. So we were the beatdown hell week, right? So we went in with like an ungodly amount of people and we had like more washout injuries than ever. I mean, I went into hell week with a stress fracture and, and took it all the way to a complete fracture when I graduated. I mean, after hell week, they took, you know, basically said, hey, they x-rayed my leg. Yeah, you got a complete fracture. And that's when I got double rolled to 205. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> those so, double rolls, I'll tell you what, there's, there's only a few of us that have had those double rolls, yeah, right? Yeah. And those things, you, you think, oh, no, it's going to be great. It's, you know, it's four months. I'm going to be fully recovered, fully healed. Yeah. But the, the, the grind of PTRR for uh, four months, man. I'm going to tell you something that maybe a lot of people won't say. My favorite part of my sale team experience was actually BUDS because I found yeah. it to be the most just place I've ever seen oh where effort is rewarded. Effort is rewarded. The, 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 Teamwork is rewarded. You're, it's the only place where I've really seen where, and again, I don't mean to beat up on officers, but it's the only time in your career where officers are rewarded for take, looking out for the guys on an extreme level. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, you know, and it's where teamwork is truly defined and it's where you are truly tested to the core. And I celebrate. I mean, I went out and got tanked the night before Hell Week. <laughs> I mean, I I love my time. I love. I mean, you think about. It, you remember Forrest Walker? I love Forrest, man. Yeah, man. I love. Forrest. I just remember him. You know, during fourth phase PTR, and he'd take you out in the surf zone. He's like, they're paying you to do this. Yeah. You're like living on a beachfront condo, living life as good as it gets. You're a pro athlete. Weekends off. You know. Beautiful. It was this. There was this age of innocence that I think yeah. consumed us, but. What, what was remarkable is that you were, it was combined with the realities of, of what we were going to potentially face, right? It was, right. you knew this was not frivolous. You knew it wasn't, right. it wasn't, we weren't just uh, wasting time. There's there, the, the reasoning behind it had such gravity to it that it really brought the best out of us as, as young men. Without a doubt, I went into... Uh, buds and in the military. I mean, I didn't even know what a SEAL was when I went to join. I, I joined to be a CB, believe it or not. So did you really? Well, yeah, you don't. You, you probably don't know my story. So I was a knucklehead growing up. My mom had me; she was sixteen. My dad was eighteen, and um, you know, inner city kid fell in with the wrong yeah, crowd. Where in inner city? Where in Boston? Uh, Boston. So I was in. You know, I I was in between Southie and when Southie was bad in Quincy. Okay. Right, and then I spent most of you know. My, a lot of time in Dorchester and all that stuff and fields, you know, places where, you know, it's, it is what it is now. Now it's all, I mean, selfies like rich. I know. <laughs> I you know. know. One, of know. My, one of my best friends uh, is a former Marine from Southie and now he's a, he's an HA out there. And 
uh, you know, he, he's, he laughs at it now compared yeah. to what it was growing up. Yeah, and I went there as like a young teenager because I kind of was a younger kid in Quincy and then my mom got remarried and I got thrown in. But, you know, I fell in with the wrong crowd and I was an atheist. Like my family never practiced religion. So I had this big hole in me, man. Like, you know, my, my, my mom had me 16. My dad was 18. That marriage didn't last. My mom got pregnant again, had two more kids, one with Down syndrome, she caught him wow. cheating, gave away, you know, my, my middle brother to adoption, kept hers and shipped me off to my grandparents, right? Wow. And so as a 11-year-old or whatever, a 10-year-old, that totally jacked me up. Devastating. I, I couldn't fa- – so that kind of broke me for a while. And then, you know, like most men, uh, if you read Wild at Heart by uh, John Eldridge yeah, or any of that brother. stuff, Beautiful. I threw it into my first girlfriend, you know, so then that was what I clung to. And if you asked me, you know, in the morning, you know, two things I was, I was sure of. My girl was going to be there for me and the sun was going to come up. And then that fell through. And I just went into a dark place, became a womanizer. And what tried age, to- Jason, what age was that? That's around 16. 16. So 16, the real that, identity, the real time yeah. where we're trying to figure out what being yeah. a man looks like. Yeah, 16 to 20 was my dark was okay. my darkest period, right? So there I am, and now I'm a, I'm a total knucklehead, dude. I mean, I'm a total knucklehead. I drop out of school like two months into 10th grade. Wow. Right? I mean, I was a smart kid. I was an A student, right? But uh, what I wanted to be. Right. Um, and, but I was big. I was jacked you know, at the time, and I was hanging out with all the dudes, so I started bouncing in nightclubs, and then I hooked up with one 24-year-old girl, and I'm like, why am I going to school ever again? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, that's what you think, is you're, you know, oh, so I'm not using the right head to think with there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then I just started bouncing, and then I kind of fell in with darker and darker crowds, and next thing you know, I'm knocking a dude out on the street to get his shoes, because my shoes didn't have dress code, and, you know, and I need to go meet a girl. Right. right. So I literally, you know, walking around looking for somebody with the shoes that would fit the dress code, knocked the guy out, took his shoes, left to my shoes. And went that was nice for you. That was very yeah. kind of you. Yeah. If you're going but I mean, to at least you can be a kind thug. Right. Right. Exactly. But I mean, you know, and that's just one of, you know, that's like one of the minor things I did. Luckily I was never caught for anything I did. I turned right when they turned left and, and finally one day I'm laying in bed and I'm like, I am a, I'm a freaking toilet, man. You know, I was just had this awakening where I'm just like, I am, I am a piece of garbage. You know, one of my friends just went away from jail and another, you know, didn't make it. And I'm like, I need to get out of here. I need a complete reset. Was it the and, confluence of all that tragedy that forced you to pick up and, and pay attention? Or was it just, did you feel it building and building? I think, I think it built over time for me. Right. And then there wasn't a particular catalyst. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, like, I always wanted to be the good guy. You know, I just got desperate and lost hope. Right. Right. That's what was happening. I didn't see a way out. You know, I mean, during that time, that 60 to 20 there, I, 20 years, I got a job in the Teamsters Union. I was making good bank. I had a nice car, leather couch, my own apartment because I didn't want to listen to anyone else's rules. And then the recession hit and I lost all that. And now I got to pay bills and I got to do stuff. And, you know, I, that's where I really got bad. So I walk into the recruiter's office, right? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to join the military. And the Marines had this bitching commercial, dude. Yeah, like, yeah. Hee-haw, 
hey, sword and yeah, stabbing the dragon and all that stuff. Oh, oh dude. So good. Oh, you know, Excalibur is one of my favorite movies. Me they too, me, me too. Me oh, too. dude. And now the Nothrock, both Vosbeck Blood, Dark Alien Day. You know? <laughs> Love that stuff. Dude, I say that around here, and my four girls look at me like I'm nine eyed. Yeah. <laughs> the chant of making, the man. The chant of making. Yeah. So uh, I walk in there and I go. Wait, 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 wait. Do you, do you know the, the, what is it, the Song of Steel, too, from Conan? Do you know that one? I know just about every Conan quote that ever was, man. <laughs> Yeah. We are children of the 80s, aren't we? Oh, dude, dude. I mean, there's there's very few things that Arnold couldn't do that I didn't know <laughs> back in the day, you know? I mean, I, I treat it as Encyclopedia Modern Bodybuilding, like the literal, the Bible. The Bible. Yeah. So I walk into the the the, the detailers, not the detailers, the recruiter's office. Recruiter. I'm like, hey, I want to join. They're like, cool. And they're like, you got your, your high school diploma? I'm like, nope. Like, can't do anything for you. I'm like, damn. What am I going to do now? The Marines won't take me. Right. So I'm like, wait a minute. Rambo's cool. I'm going to go join. I'm going to be like, you know, bah, open the eye in the mud. Come out. Be that yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, go there. Sit down. Start the same conversation. Like, nope. Can't take you. I'm like, man. Air Force wasn't even working. They literally <laughs> had the day off as usual. And then I'm like, Navy, man. I don't want to be in the Navy. I like girls. I don't want to be on a ship with a bunch of dudes. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm like, wait a minute. My buddy Dave was a CB. You know, he gets to carry a gun, gets to go some cool places, never on a ship. And now he's making good money driving a crane or whatever, right? So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go in there. So I walk in there. They throw me up. They're like, give us your name and number. Special programs open up all the time. So a couple months go by and I get a call and they're like, hey, come down. We want to see how dumb you are. I'm like, all right, cool. I come down. I take that test. I smoke it. I go to the ASVAB. I smoke the ASVAB. And uh, so now they're, they're all calling me. And I'm like, all right, listen, I'm going to give the Navy a chance first because they're the first person who thought I was worth something. Integrity. So I sit down. They're like, hey, we want you to be a nuke. I'm like, what? I'm like, dude, I got a GED. A nuke? They're like, yeah, what is that? I'm like, you're on a submarine. I'm like, submarine? No. Nah, no, nah. no, no. I'm all set. <laughs> I'm all set. I'm like, well, they also have these nuclear reactors on aircraft carriers. I'm like, no, at the time, no chicks, no chicks, no way. All right. So that's what I thought. I'm like, all right, well, how about this? A gas turbine dude, right? <laughs> who works on these gas turbines and all that. I'm like, yeah, that looks cool. They go on land, but you're not going to trick me, dude. That, that ship goes on another ship. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm going to do that. I'm like, I'm going to go to lunch. You guys better have a cool job for me when I come back. And if I don't, I'm going to go talk to everyone else. And they're like, all right, so I go to lunch, come back. I sit down and dude, he slides this, like that white and black car yeah. with the seal description on over. <laughs> Die fair program, dude. I'm like, why didn't you show me this from GoPro six years? Kapow. You know, exactly. Oh, dude. And this was before Steven Seagal. This was before Charlie Sheen. That stuff just came out. Yeah. So then I'm drinking everything, Rogue Warrior, I'm drinking, I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. So, so anyways, I first classed up a 193. Actually. Yeah, you had been there in the 190s. Yeah. Right. yeah, I was there, got a stress fracture, got rolled out, sent to the hospital to Corman, 18 months, came back. I get a funny curve in my tibia that just gets destroyed. Wow. If I beat on it too much. So, and plus I was a big kid. I never wanted to be a skinny guy. I tried to carry as much muscle as I could, <laughs> you know, and that was probably part of it. 
So, I mean, even uh, even there, you know, I was, you know, in the twos, 200. When I went back Dude, to see them, I, I remember it. you were thick as hell, man. I was yeah. like, how does he keep that weight on during this yeah. madness? Yeah. And then, um, you know, and then I just, I, I just absolutely love buds. I love first phase. I love log PT, dive phase was I mean, dude, I didn't know how to swim. They had to teach me the stroke. Like wow. when I went to test and boot camp, I mean, I knew how, I mean, I, I've been around one. I could tread and I could do an unorganized stroke. Yeah. But I remember there was a guy named uh, Todd Hopwood who went on to become a team guy. I don't know if he was West Coast guy. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, grab an apple or pick the, pick the apple from the tree, put it in your hand, put it in the basket. Yeah. I did that as fast as I could and I passed. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I was the only one who passed in that class up there on that, that screening test. And I'm just like, holy smokes that worked yeah apple basket you know that's what i did so anyways so i tried to fill i I had it was it was me i I wasn't a good swimmer either i grew up in south florida but i remember when we were once we had finished boot camp i was in boot camp with uh scott zinn and uh or john zinn and uh a guy named brian jay who was both in 205 and they were these these 18 year old kids who were both like world-class swimmers oh man and when we were at uh when we were in um um bethesda maryland uh (laughs) we were at the pool there and they like would try to work with me and they're like forget it rutherford you're just gonna fail we're we're not helping it's like no that was just horrible man yeah yeah man so i um tried to fill that hole that we were talking about with camaraderie and yeah. I thought that's where it was. And in Buds, it really worked. You know, there I was, you know, I had my buddy Greg and Chooch and everybody. And like, yeah. we called ourselves the Beef Crew. And I met, you know, so many other great dudes like Chris Connell and other ones. Oh. You know, and yeah. um, and it was awesome, you know. And um, then went into the teams and the teams were great. But, you know, and I think uh, Tom Shea covers this a little bit. But mm-hmm. before, um, before 9-11, we kind of used to eat our own for a while there, man. Oh, br- you know brutal. I'm saying? Brutal. It was, there was a, not a lot of mentorship, and I was such a broken kid. You know, I didn't have a father figure in anything. All I wanted to do was fight, mm-hmm. right? Don't call me to build the pallets with one of my stupidest quotes ever. Call me when you need me to beat the crap out of somebody or do whatever, right? Like, what the hell is that? What kind it's of knucklehead a, it's, was it's that? It's a high degree of intelligence. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> So, that's called that's called cultural assimilation, Jason. Yeah, yeah. So instead, I I just tried to get as tough as I could and try to carry a big chip on my shoulder. And you know, I and I was stunted in my growth, I think, in the teams and in my life until until I found God and was able to you know reconcile that wounded warrior, not wounded warrior, but um, oh come on now, <sighs> Operation Restored Warrior, right, is the ones that really helped me. Do you remember? You know, do you remember specifically any time um, where you were like, where you noticed guys that had faith, and you were yeah, like, totally, yeah, Travis where, McNeese, hands who? down, Travis McNeese. Okay, all right, so Travis and um, um, there was a second phase instructor, Todd, um, blonde hair. He's a pastor. He was a pastor then. I can't believe I can't remember his name. He was just. I just saw his, saw him on Facebook. But anyways, I noticed guys that dealt with things the best, you know, were Christians. 
Yeah. I mean, things just seem to wash off their back. And I remember I was a diehard atheist, bro. I slayed every Christian I ever got in a conversation with and I'd use their faith against them and do all the stuff. Cause I was angry. Yeah. You know, basically it was my lack of fatherless. So I couldn't understand the father. You know what I'm saying? The yeah. God being the father. I mean, I, I got the Jesus part and I, you know, I still struggle with the father to be honest with you in this, in the, in the Trinity, you know, so I, I get the Jesus part, I get the Holy spirit, but the father I always considered as judgy, whatever. And I just, I felt abandoned, right. Cause I've been abandoned by, you know, everyone in my life. So, um, so yeah, man, I just, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that, but I, I actually, that was the, it was, um, the moment Guys where you, calm. yeah, the moment you you started to recognize that, hey, in in this crazy ass world of being a team guy, this this, I don't want to call it a lust, um, but uh, a definite desire to want to go to war, to want mm-hmm. to want to acknowledge the very worst things within the human condition because of our training. The the willingness to want to test ourselves against those evils, man. Dude, my paradise, my ultimate end, if you asked me up until about 35, would have been dying on top of, in a mountain of brass, going into hand-to-hand with my bros. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That was my aspiration until I got, until, you know, well, actually until I was probably 40. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm 48 now. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I was an atheist for 37 years, and all I had was anger. That was my drug. That is what consumed me. And that was that that's part of what I channeled to get through everything. And that is, I mean, it's that's I think anger is a very big part of what I mean, a lot of team guys are broken. There's very few yeah. that are model Christian guys who go through or sit we want that ideal, like me. If you remember Dungeons and Dragons back in the day, you're of my era. I always wanted to be the paladin. Yeah, man. I I, there was a picture in the book there, the player's handbook, where there was this one solo knight coming through this like gates in the hell and he's fighting all these demons alone. I've dug that because I yeah. felt like that in my yeah. head, Absolutely. you know, so that's, that's kind of what I gravitated towards. When, when you had that moment where you started to recognize that, you know, the camaraderie of the team, although it, it there's a, there's a profound appeal to it. There's a definite support. Uh, a nurturing as it relates to being a war fighter, uh, but kind of, you know, there's an anonymity to being an actual human being, right? There's, right, you, right. You can't show up every day and walk into the platoon space while, you know, they've got a full 50 cal of, of hammering you and going, right. Wait a minute, guys, this is really distracting me from being able to do my job well. It's really crushing me. Yeah. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you say that, that, you're going to be haze with you know duct tape in place or a rigorous tape or you don't want it oh at it all right (laughs) so in that moment when when you begin to realize man i'm not going to be fulfilled in in those spaces in my heart in terms of developing that core empathy that really enables me to process my life in a way that uh, i can cease to be resentful i can i can quiet the anger in my heart and I can turn this idea around to a place where I can start projecting uh, not only with the strength that I've gotten from turning my life around and what I chose to do and the hardships, but now I can start projecting a different concept, a, a different ideology out to help people. 
Can right. you walk well, us through that transition for you? Yeah. So one, when I was in, I didn't see that, you know, in the teams, you know, I didn't see any of that uh, mentorship. Um, that would have been very healthy. And I think it was almost, you know, I, I can see some benefit in what they're doing by keeping you angry and keeping you in this rock star lifestyle. They, in the short term, I think it's easier, right? But in the long term, guys break, right? They break down, you get alcohol, you get drugs, you get divorces, your kids turn into strippers, and the long term consequences of that are that's, you know, forgive my big giant mastiff just wandering around. Yeah, no, I saw him come in. I'm waiting for my Rhodesian to walk in. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we we just saw it. We just saw it recently with, you know, a very, very, you know, a guy who's a legend in the team. I don't know if he was one of your third phase instructors. He's one of my third phase instructors. His son just committed suicide. Yeah. 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 God, sorry. and, And that's just become the norm. And 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 whether it's it's children and their suicides, whether it's guys committing suicide, whether it's the dysfunction, all the related dysfunctions that have come along with twenty straight years of combat, yeah, you know, it, you have to recognize, hey, there there are some other things that we should be addressing in terms of this mentorship requirement for for yeah. all of us. Well, and I think that's you know you're going to get me to go off on a rant tangent here. Uh, I think it's really, that's what I I do. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't have a lot of love for senior leadership inside of the teams um, during our period. Uh, I really, you know, we were really trying, you know, at competing interests. I think, Um, you know, we wrote a lot of guys really hard and put them away wet for a very long time. And nobody knowing that they're never going to tag themselves out. Right. No one, they're not going to say, Hey, I need a break because they're addicted to it. They're addicted to the camaraderie, you know, and being over there and being a part of something, you know, awesome is it can be real, you know, it's way different than coming home, you know, for some and having to deal with your wife and your kids and the bills and the problems and all that stuff. It's simple over there. Mission first, bros, everything you got, you come back and that's when you got all the side effects that, that lifestyle causes, which is mess, right? It's a lot of mess at home. And, you know, senior leadership, I really felt like let us down. I think in our quest to attain, to attain seniority in the ranks, we gave one set of rules to officers and another set of rules to enlisted guys. And we had a lot of freaking turds in the teams uh, at, at leadership position. I personally fired two wow. my platoons. Right. Meaning that, you know, I lobbied the guys, went to the master chief and said, this guy's got to go. Wow. You know, um, and here was the case for both of them. They both sucked on the West Coast. They both got canned to Puerto Rico, gained rank, came back after being on shore duty for all that time, came back, were given OIC slots on the, on the East Coast to hide them from their mistakes on the West Coast. And both of them utterly fell flat in their face. And one of them killed the guy next to me. Oh, you know, my God. Mario Maestas. I don't know if you know Mario, yeah, yeah. but I, he, you know, that, you know, the officer there t- without a doubt blew his brains out. And I was the medic. I did everything I could. I brought him to the hospital, wow. you know, alive, intubated with a pulse. But I mean, he had gross brain matter coming out of his forehead, you know, yeah. and they protected him even then. Yeah. So this, this officer, right. They didn't renew his contract, allowed him to keep his bird. So he phased out. 
mm-hmm. came back as a reservist and ended up heading up a debt in Rhode Island. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, dude. And what I watched in that cover up of what happened to, to that, you know, and Mario was a stud, dude. He was a stud. He was a great looking kid, great guy, great operator. So much about that guy that, you know, went out there. And that stayed with me forever. And, and to me, that was the last straw because I watched the team's senior leadership betray the guys. Right. And, and the worst part is I told training the night before that they could not do night vision with this guy and begged them not to do it because he was going to kill someone. And literally the first run he did. Oh, my God. Jason, man, I'm so sorry you had to go through that, brother. No, I mean, I'm I'm sorry for Mario and his family and everyone else, you know, um, you know, and um, but it's just, you know, that to me just showed me, and I saw it time after time after time, right? So what do we do? We just lost a guy in a training accident, a horrible training accident. Do you bring him home and let him decompress with their families? No, keep him out there, let him drink it off. Yeah, drink it off. Drink it off. That's what we did, and it tore the platoon apart, oh. you know, and it was just terrible leadership, but this is what happened. I mean, the biggest problem back in those days was how many DUIs did a guy have, right? And yep. instead of helping those guys, they drove them away. Yeah, it was sad. I, you, you, you know, hopefully, and I'm not sure if it's happening, and I certainly know, you know, uh, I'm not getting warm fuzzies from um, what I'm hearing on how they're addressing a lot of these issues, uh, certainly, oh. uh, not getting, um, I'm not, I, we, we did the numbers of fatalities and uh, that shouldn't be happening continue. Uh, they're not yep. slowing down. We're, you know, as you know, we're getting ready to have all the nine eleven babies retire, which I believe is going to, uh, cause a, a wreak havoc in our, and our ranks are our veteran ranks in our community as it is in all communities, whether it's soft, you know, or special forces yeah. or Marsoc, we just see it. And I, and, and that's why I find it fascinating when I see guys like you decide to continue serving as police officers. Um, even though, you know, you've, you've seen, um, kind of the, the great challenges within bureaucracy, the great challenges within um, certain cultures that, that prop up a really dysfunctional attitude because it somehow uh, is tied to the ability to pull your trigger under duress, which there is no direct correlation, right? It's, it's, right. it's all just this facade. So there was a, there was a catalyst there yeah. that, made, that pulled me from the team. So while <clears throat> basically while I was – you know, working up and then deployed, I lost my little brother to heroin. So I decided right then and there that, Hey, you know what? I'm done making these third world countries safer where they hate us. Anyways, I am going to uh, come back and fight in my own community. So, you know, I walked away at 16, 15 years, 10 months. I had to get, you know, I had to get some pretty heavy paperwork done to get out two months early because my, they had a rule in Boston, but you had to be hired by your 37th birthday. Mm-hmm. Well, I literally wasn't going to make it. So they let me out two months uh, early so I could make it in the academy. Went through the academy and different organizations do things really well. So the SIL teams do, a, you know, a really good job at a lot of things. And what, what I loved about the police department is that everyone starts at the same rank and they pull up, promote on merit. 
they're supposed to promote them. Right? There's right. some cronyism and then people get promoted for whatever reason. And I really think the teams could use that because having a college degree has absolutely nothing to do with things. <laughs> and from what I understand is after we, after I got out and I don't know, know when you got out brother, but you know, I realized they started putting officers more in support positions like away from it and they weren't making tactical decisions out there and doing whatever they were letting the chiefs and the guys who deployed and deployed and deployed from, from what I, from what I hear as lessons learned. Um, and I, I really think that that is, you know, that there is something in there. Like if we were to start the military all over again, the whole officer enlisted structure was basically started back in the day when people couldn't read, write or count. Right. You know what I'm saying? Read, write, or count. You get this read, write, or count. So nobles who were educated were officers and they were nobility. And then the guys were the guys, right? And right now, I mean, I'll put any team guy pretty much against any officer anywhere and they're all equally as brilliant. I mean, we attract brilliant, awesome dudes. So, I mean, I understand that creates a massive challenge for them to try to lead guys who are at least as smart as you are. Mm -hmm. Right? But, um, you know, and, and this is something that I, I often wondered, you know, because I, I see a lot of people out there, you know, leaning on military cats for leadership. And I'm like, do you guys understand that if I didn't listen to my lieutenant, I went to jail? <laughs> I went to jail. Yeah, yeah, jail. Right? Hard I could time, go to yeah. jail and demoted in rank and all these things. So it's positional, right? But when you see enlisted guys leading, it's totally different. Yeah. It's earned respect. Right. I mean, there were some guys who, you know, who just made rank because they could take tests and all that stuff. But you, the guys that the legends out there that people, they didn't, you didn't care who they were because they walked the walk and they talked the talk and they led from the front and by example, an LPO that never told anyone to sweep the floor because when he grabbed the broom, 15 guys would have to fight to get it out of his hand. Yeah. Know what I'm saying? Guys who showed up early because they didn't want to let, their guy, their LPO down who fought to make muster as late as possible so that you could spend time with your wife and kids, you know? Wow. Yeah. I don't know where I, that whole tangent went off. No, I, I don't know I, how are you going to clean up this podcast? No, it's, it's no, <laughs> Jason, this is fantastic because what people, what they, what people want to understand when, when there are crises is where does leadership come from? Right? right. Who do they look to? Who do they look for? How do they, make this the tough decisions in crisis it's the 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 monotony of of everyday execution right of of oh i uh this is the the minimum requirements for my job this is how i need to handle my finances and my family and getting people to school or work on time that stuff becomes second nature right it almost becomes just rote because of you know the time commitment that you have to put in but when it comes to influencing other people you know, and, and by I don't the, think there's an easy way to it. There isn't, there is no right. other, other than being in those circumstances where God is calling upon you to make decisions when not, nobody else really wants to make them, when they all kind of move back away and they're like, no, I'm, I, you know, everybody's pointing yeah. a finger somewhere else and then you step up. And so I, that's why I think it's fascinating that you're describing the, the, the variables where you go into the academy and everybody starts at, at, at ba- the baseline and everybody, your, your, um, your reputation is built on how well you succeed. Can you describe right. that a little bit more? Yeah. Well, you know, and again, I'm, it's basically you go in, everyone starts at, we'll call it a one. Right. 
And then you start busting your butt and you make a reputation for yourself. And because of that, you get rewarded with certain assignments and positions where you're again, affording the ability to excel to, to kind of punch tickets, to move your way up by performance and by, and by doing that. Now, if you get put in a special division and you don't do a bunch of you're going to be known as the guy who didn't do a lot. Now this is for it in an ideal world. Right. None of this ever exists in a vacuum. And there are always, there's always going to be cronyism, especially in places like Boston, where it's the oldest police department in the nation, period. They were the first in the nation. And you got like 16 generations of cops there, right? Their dads, this and that. So outside of that, but if you just look at the beauty of the chief of police was a one, right? He was a one. And then he was, a, and then worked his way up. So he understands that. Whereas you look at how, you know, the officer structure came in, they come in and if they were lucky, they were a third O and they got to be just a guy and learn what the guys are going through and pal around and help with the paperwork, but they got in a department. But typically what happened, they came in, they're an AOIC where they're doing whatever. And they barely know what the hell they're doing, but they're expected to make calls, right? Like we were in a place, you know, um, before Damnick tapped all the, awesome dudes right i had guys in my platoons like like uh, you know bill jarvis who had like a billion platoons like steve and i don't want to say his last name because he's still in mm -hmm. and like but he had a ton of platoons and dudes had like platoons upon platoons and they knew knew all this stuff and they had all this knowledge and then damn neck sucked away everybody with more like three and now you have one of platoon wonders out there who are the experienced guys and it yeah. just made the regular teams, you know, a bad place. So it was hard to push back on those O's. I think, I think that was probably a pretty big factor in some of the tragedies that we've known out there where you didn't really have a guy with six, seven, eight, nine platoons that could weigh in on a decision that might cause a massive problem. Yeah, I agree you know? for sure. You, you know, know, and I, and I think, you know, it, it's funny where you look at the trajectory of, of experience too, you know, where we had that peak in 2011, 12, and then, you know, guys were just, you know, six, seven combat platoons are just fried. And then they're coming out and they're trying to go to those places, rebuild their families. And now all of a sudden you, yeah. it creates this void of other people to move into those positions again. And, and, you know, and I think that's, what's interesting is that, and it's kind of a phenomenon in, in, in all, in all areas where life and death is a reality, right. Is, the, the human experience or the human condition can only take so much before it needs to start to, you know, it needs to come off the line to retrofit right. itself, you know, your psych, your psychosis and everything else that's going on, your body, your everything. Right. And then, and then start moving back in, in a, in a, in a way that fits kind of a new generation that, that came in as an op at, at the head of the operational component while you were, repairing yourself and you know i think that yeah. that flux is always kind of tricky i would imagine did you see those those kinds of things when you went to the department as well no they do such a really good job i mean because they've been around for 400 years or something ridiculous <laughs> like that they made all the mistakes yeah. and they're not perfect they have brought a lot of baggage with them but uh, what i what i saw was a system unlike the military system where again, I found that merit and, you know, anyone can be cool for a little while. It's what your overall pack, your overall performance over a long time, right? right? Like even guys can fake it through buds, 
right? You know, where they can be, you know, a team player because they know they're under the microscope and do that. And then you kind of see them devolve afterwards, which is why we, you know, I think we do still have people wash out afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I saw them, you know, there there was a great mentoring aspect where they would take young guys and they'd partner them with like your FTO for six months. Mm -hmm. Six months with a dude who's there who's been in the worst neighborhood for 20 years. Wow. Right? You know what I'm saying? That's, and, a, long, that's a long mentoring. That's a long apprenticeship. That's good. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that apprenticeship, I think, is what, what works so well. Right? And it's not like in the teams we do that. Right? We never, I, no, you don't have anyone assigned to you, and you really do. I mean, because you're taking people from, then, yeah, they went through BUDS, and then we went through SQT and went through all this stuff. But, but who's there to make sure that the rest of your stuff's tight? Like that you're not beating your wife or you're not drinking yourself to sleep in, at night or whatever, right? Just somebody who's there who's not to judge, man. Like that's what we needed. And that's what you're like your master chief or whatever was supposed to be. And that was not the case. That was your disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. So what'd you do? You had to sweep everything under the rug and you had to hide everything. Yeah. You know? Let me ask you this. Was it, sure. was it, was it, I mean, obviously losing your, your brother must've been crushing, right? And, and, and yep. to, to alter your entire life trajectory to want to get on the street. Did you want to get on the street to get rid of the people that were selling your brother the drugs? Or did you want to get on the street to understand and try and fix it? Originally, I got on, I wanted to get on the street to make a difference. Like, I love the fact that, you know, I could directly make the, a difference in the people's lives in the city of Boston at any moment. Being a cop at that point gave me the ability to fix something. Something was wrong. I could step up and address it and fix it. I mean, that's something that we really can't, you can't comprehend normally. Right. And, and fix it the right way. And then you get exposed to the court systems and all those other things. And you see the problems with it. And you see, I, I just got to see a, a window into the soul of how broken we are. Like how, is, that we, is that we as as a, as Boston as the legal justice system as the as a, as America society? as Ameri wow, as a society okay. yeah wow and I, and when I say as America I, you know I probably shouldn't say as America America I believe is the best justice system in the world I believe we're really the best remember I don't know if there was a saying going around the teams when you when with you guys have you ever heard it's not that we're so good it's that everyone else is so bad yeah 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 that's <laughs> basically what i feel like our our system is here you now whether it's our government yeah. or any of that other stuff right right and you know it's because we do the little stuff well and we have the principles and the guidance and all that stuff and you know what what i what i just discovered is like one of the most lucid moments i i've ever had was there was a guy it was a call i was on and he had beat the bejesus out of his wife. And we didn't get called. The neighbors called or someone called. And we're there and his little kid's there. And I asked him, I tried to always give people a solid, right? I'm like, do you want to step out in the hall? I don't want to arrest you in front of your son. And he said to me, no, I want him to see the man taking me away. And I'm like, dude, I, I didn't cause this. I didn't make wow. you beat up your wife. I didn't, you know, she's going to the hospital now. I didn't have any of that to do with this. You did this, right? And I'm trying to still give you an image because I don't want your son to see you going away in cuffs. 
And he's like, no, I want him to see that you're the bad guy. Wow. That's when I knew that we were screwed. Wow. That's heavy, man. Did it, did it, was it debilitating from, I mean, obviously it's a debilitating social acknowledgement, right? Wow. We're, yeah. we're, we're, there are that many layers of dysfunction in, in every household and every street and the lower, obviously the, the less educated, the, the more, uh, uh, violence plays a role in the more the, stress. You can say just stress, stress. Yeah, you have to stress point. for everything. Boom. Right. Yeah. Cause you got to get this and you got to get that and you got to, and you don't have any safety net when you only have this much wiggle room on your money. You know, there's not, your stress starts way sooner. Whereas you get a nice bank account, your stress doesn't start till later. That's just a very bad example. Right? No, no, it's legit. Right. I think, and that's the way we've been conditioned to think actually, you know, that's yep. why we put, you know, so much stress on, on kids nowadays, you have to go to college, you have to get a, 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 a advanced degree, you have to go into $150,000 in debt instead of doing a smart job or yeah. whatever, you know, there, just the way we stress kids out and the way we stress our society out is, is I think, endemic of the problems that we're, we're facing on a regular yeah. basis. And yeah, go ahead. And one of the things, one of the things I'd like to say you know, is that, you know, being a SEAL is tough, but you're everyone's hero, right? You know, everyone supports the troops now. We didn't have to deal with the Vietnam era crap that they had to deal with. Being a cop is literally the hardest job in America. Everyone hates you. Wow. Only young kids and old people like you. And the only time people want, and most of the time when you interact with people, it's on the worst day of their life. Wow. And you're there to enforce society's rules on them, which they have broken, unless you're the vic that you're rescuing the victim. Did you, how often, because I think what we, we do as a society is we, we like to, we love groupthink, right? And so right. we, we want to we wanna mash a bunch of really complicated, nuanced issues into an individual's life, into this collective uh, uh, um, um, stamp of disapproval. Um, did you ever, how often in, in all the calls that you had, did you ever see like it was just cut and dry? This person is sociopathic. This cursed person is psychopathic. They're just a bad human being. They're gun. They deserve what they get. They don't care. Were, was that the overwhelming or was it always these more complicated issues of you know, childhood trauma and, and poverty and all these other things combined. I, I very rarely saw the naturally born evil person. What I saw most often and having been a thug myself, <laughs> um, once you lose hope, what do you care? Wow. Right. When, you, when in life sucks for you and all other things and you can't see a way out, what do you care? And that's what I saw. I saw guys with, you know, two outs and three strikes every day walking around. Wow. That's how they live their life. Right. That, did, they, did they like that? Did they, did they I, like I don't it? think that, some of them can recognize it. What's that? Did it give them a, cause you know, when you feel danger and it's palpable in your life, right? It, you know, especially when you, you, you're numb to any emotional feelings, you're numb to, man, I know that, that I'm loved by these people. I'm, I have meaning and relevance in with this team or this group of this small subculture that I've been affiliated with. 
But people that are living in that other space, man, they're, they're, dis, they're detached and they're striving to feel some sense of feeling day in and day out. So is it, is it really that sense of uh, danger, that sense of living it out on the edge? Is, is that a driver for their relevance? I, you know, not a psychologist, but that's not what I observed. Okay. What I observed was people struggling to survive and to find joy in whatever way they knew how to find it. So if it's slinging drugs so you can have a nice car and pick up hot girls, then that's what you're going to do. If it's, you know, whatever it is you're going to do, if people, people want, want happiness, you know, and happiness must be pursued. Right. You can't, you don't slip and fall into happiness. It's, it's a deliberate pursuit of it. And, you know, once they lose their hope, they go to the only ways they know how to, to get any joy. Wow. That's heavy, man. Yeah. I, you know, I never thought we'd be talking about this. <laughs> oh, I, 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 that's the beauty of the, uh, I, that's where I, the frog logic podcast ends up going. It could, <laughs> the minds of frogmen and the minds of everybody else. And I just, I, I really appreciate you, your willingness to discuss this type of thing. I, of course, man, it's without hope. I mean, that's the one thing that we see and that's what we're lacking right now with this COVID-19 is you watching people starting to spiral down this depress, this depression, get into a place with very little hope. Hope always drives us the hope of something better you know, working to better ourselves or, you know, for a better tomorrow or for anything. And once people lack that, what they're willing to do is pretty scary. And that's more of a Jordan Peterson thing than anything oh, yeah. that I, mean, I could even possibly touch on. Massive fan of, of old JP there, you know, man. Yeah. He's he, awesome, man. He is huge. And and if, if you're, if you ever get excited, man, go take it one deeper. And uh, I started reading his first book, Map of Maps of Meaning, you know, that he spent. Is it, I don't know, man. It might be over my head. Oh, God, bro. It's, it's brutal, dude. I'm literally <laughs> like looking up. You're having to look up words every oh, other day? Every, every <laughs> sentence, man. It's crazy because he roots it in this deep Jungian Carl Jung theory. And, yeah. you know, and it's about the, the 20th century and the most, you know, the most evil century of all humanity, you know. Yeah. yeah. He, 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 this, he dissects it on in a way where, you know, it, it, it it really gives you some insight as to how profoundly complicated we each, each of us are. Right. And, and that there are never, it's never easy. There's never a, a simple, every, and, and again, as Americans, what are we always trying to do? We're always trying to, to cram the easy solution down everybody's throat. And I think that's what we're seeing in the media's hysteria. We're seeing in, you know, different, you know, government, people from government, people from academia, we're seeing all of this, you know, this, this um, stress and this induced stress because, uh, you know, making decisions in these very difficult times is difficult. And, and I, I think can't even imagine being the president and having no. to make these decisions right now. No way. Like, I'm so like, I am so glad I don't have to sit there and say balance a hypothetical economy versus a hypothetical death count of a disease that everyone's giving me contradictory information on. No, nope. No, no. Those, those, like, these are the like. Talk about a moving target. Yeah. That's like, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do there at, at all. And, and, you know, and, and I think, you know, the one 
And, and by the way, I love the, the shows you've been putting out on recently about COVID-19. Thank you. I mean, really beautiful. The, the one with, with Denver Riggleman and the SBA loans, that was massive for me. Immediately took all his information and started yeah. doing my own research. That was incredible. I, I, you know, so I got an update to that, brother. Yeah, I filed for my SBA loan today in five minutes. Five minutes? Five minutes. How, They've updated the website. How did that how did I, So go? you log on to the website. Right, you literally go on there, and there's like a red box on the page that says, you know, apply for whatever. Don't click that one. Click the one on the top banner that says COVID nineteen here. You fill that out. It's literally like fifteen questions. Wow. Right, fifteen questions, like yes or no. Quite, it's, it's probably a little bit more than that. It was, I think, three pages, but it literally took me like five to seven minutes. I didn't time it, but um. You go through it and you apply for that emergency 10K grant. Yeah. Okay. And then they qualify you up to the max of what you can get. Wow. Done. That's Somebody it. smart looked at it and said, why are we making this hard? Yeah. Right. And it is like, boom. So they're just cutting those checks for 10 grand. They took me, you know, like I said, between five and 10 minutes. You oh can my do it God. right now. All you need is your, what you grossed last year. Yeah. What your costs were last year. Your EIN, right? And then yep. just normal stuff. Wow. I love it. Done. Done. So, and, and that will, they'll, if you qualify for a 7A, which is the one up to 10 million, the, yeah. the one in the middle, and then the emergency 10K, supposedly in 72 hours, as Denver said. Um, you know, um, so that's an update as of this morning. Wow. I've seen, that, I've seen that website go through migrations. I started the first one, which was this long process, and I had to walk away because I didn't have any info, all the info. Yep. Uploading, like, documents from, like, my kindergarten years or whatever. <laughs> and then I came back, and the site was crashed, and everything was like a, a PDF they had to fill out. And, of course, I continued to do it. And then today, I went, you know, I went on, and it was simplified. Boom. Done. I'm, I know what I'm doing as soon as I hang up. Yep. <laughs> awesome, brother. Yeah. Hey, let, let me just take a quick moment to thank my sponsors. Sure. All right. Thank you so much. Sorry for the, again, sorry for the interruption, but I, I just want to, I want to say if everybody out there is uh, doing what I'm doing while you're home right now, you are working out twice a day. Uh, you're doing your yard. You're cleaning out every every closet. You're you are going big. You are optimizing your time in order to better get in uh, better shape, uh, more uh, uh, more squared away, just nonstop, man. And uh, so have I got some things for you, All right? First thing I want to do is just one, thank on it for being a, an incredible supporter of the Frog Logic podcast. I just thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, every day I wake up, I, I have uh, a little bit of a, uh, um, alpha brain to get me going to help with my uh, cognitive alacrity, if you will. Uh, throughout the day, I also uh, use their total gut health. I use their amino acids. I use their creatine. I use their uh, uh, performance enhancing uh, peanut butter uh, as well as everything else there is. Um, fixing, getting ready to uh, buy some more uh, kettlebells. I think I'm probably going to get some of those uh, Captain America bumper plates. Uh, basically, if you want to continue optimizing your performance on every level, then go over to onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T, onnit.com, and check out all the things that are going to enhance you and prepare you for when this 
godforsaken coronavirus COVID-19 thing comes to an end here, hopefully in the, in the close future, when we'll all be in better shape, we'll be more focused, we'll have produced uh, the greatest novel since, uh, I don't know, some great novel, War and Peace, uh, and you're ready to get back to things at the best possible uh, place you've ever been in your life. So head on over to Onnit.com, uh, get yourself uh, whatever you need in order to optimize your performance because they have it ready for you. All right. Second one is I just want to say a big shout out to uh, Wise Company. Um, you know, Wise Food Storage is pr- the best food storage that's out there. Uh, I've, I've tried just about everything you can have on the market. I've eaten just about every meal they have. It tastes great. It lasts for about 25 years. Uh, if you buy the buckets, it's easy to stack. It's easy to store. And I'll tell you right now, uh, you don't want to not be prepared uh, for the next pandemic, right? Um, you know, I I, I understand. Uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, direct messages saying, "Hey, uh, Wise is not uh, they're t- they're delayed." But I'm telling you, I just got off the phone last week with the CEO, and they are turning and burning, working 24/7 at their production f- facility in Salt Lake City, and they are pumping out as much freeze dried food as possible. So, go ahead and do your order. It'll get to you. It just might take a few weeks. Um, but it's going to get to you because this is the stuff that'll prepare you uh, if there's another ridiculous run on toilet paper or whatever's out there. I don't know what's next. But, uh, you know, there's some positive news coming out about numbers dropping off in Italy, numbers maybe steadying off in, in New York. Um, but I, I believe we still have a little bit left to go, a couple months, maybe more. Uh, but, you know, you never can be too safe or sorry. Uh, give yourself some peace of mind by going over to wisefoodstorage.com. That's wisefoodstorage.com. Check out all the products they got there. Uh, I personally have enough for uh, six months of food for my family. Uh, best stuff I've ever gotten. This is the stuff that you want to get. So head over to wisefoodstorage.com. Push in uh, for the promo code. Type in FrogLogic and you will get 25% off everything they have there you, you, you don't want to miss this opportunity. Order a year's worth of food, uh, 25% off. It's the best deal that they got going. All right, head on over to wisefoodstorage.com, promo code FROGLOGIC, and that'll be the deal. All right, also, if you want to help us out uh, here at Team Frog Logic, uh, head on over to teamfroglogic.com forward slash store. Get yourself a Frog Logic T-shirt. Get yourself a Frog Logic uh, hat, a sticker. Uh, hell, buy my uh, Forging Self Confidence book that's out there for adults. I've got two great kids books out: uh, Doc Frog's PT for Kids, twelve exercises to get your kid dialed in, as well as Doc Frog's Anti-Bully book with the Anti-Bully Brigade. Uh, a wonderful book if uh, to prepare uh, your children if they are getting bullied, if they might get bullied in the future. It's a great book. Did a lot of research on this. It'll be a lot of fun to read with your kids or your kids just take it on their own. Man, you won't want to miss it. All right, that's uh, teamfroglogic.com if you want to support us. All right, back to the show. All right, great. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh, uh, believing in Frog Logic and the podcast. Thank you. I just uh, can't say enough about On It and Wise Foods. Um, all right, let's – I want to talk now about um, – your time, time in the teams, time in the police force, coming to Christ, uh, understanding, wanting to make a difference, and help us understand why to why walk away from the police department and start Trident Shield. Because in my mind, 
It was a catalyst. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it is the total catalyst of the entirety, not only of, hey, oh, this would be cool. There's these, you know, Sandy Hook goes down. We're, we're in a really bizarre time. We need, there's not enough good information. I'll just do this and make a buck. Man, this is the culmination of your life. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've never done anything once for money. I mean, who retires at? 16 years or gets out at 16 years or nothing. You and Rob O'Neill, that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. Right? <laughs> you know, but he knew he was going to be a millionaire yeah, when he walked did. away, yeah, right? I sure as hell didn't. <laughs> Still not, by the way. Oh, um, that's awesome. You know, so the catalyst was losing my brother to drugs, and yeah. then there was an opportunity to get. Hey, Jason, what's your brother's name, real quick? Ryan. Ryan. Okay. Ryan Callahan. Ryan Callahan. Yep. And uh, when I lost Ryan, you know, um, that was a catalyst. And then why I left BPD um, was my son was born and he has autism. And um, when you're on the, you're in Boston and, you know, and particularly when you're on the SWAT team, like I was, you don't have any time off. You're always on call. You know, there's always, you know, doing the sexy stuff. Right. But then there's the, the, you know, the, the funerals where I was on the, the SWAT team's also the motor unit. So you're on the bike. So you're doing all the escorts, all the parades, everything on top of everything else. And you just never had enough time off. And autism is one of those things where in the beginning you have, a, you can have a really profound effect on where they end up in the end by throwing a lot of resources at it. Mm -hmm. So I decided um, to walk away from my career there wow. and I did EP work. Um, for a company called Remy. Um, did executive protection for a guy worth $52 billion um, <laughs> and needed a job that would allow me to, to move to Charlottesville where my ex-wife, now ex-wife, um, had family and friends, the Virginia Institute of Autism's there, and to slow life down and throw as much resources at Connor, my son, as we could. So I went and I did EP work, which was 30 days on, 30 days off great life, you know, making good money. Not what I made more money as a cop. Boston cops make phenomenal though. The highest paid good Boston cop two years ago was like 400 K. Good for him. Yep. The average is in the hundred is like 150, I think. Um, so I, you know, doing that. And, um, then I remember one day, um, literally was out at, you know, driving and uh, no, I was watching TV and, um, Sandy Hook went down. I'm like, that's it. That's it. I, I can't not do something now. A kid with autism just walked in to a school and killed a bunch of first graders, man. Wow. And I'm just like, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I got to, I got to find a way to do this. And so um, I started Trident Shield later that year. Um, you know, and I would just started doing like schools on the side. And then it just kind of evolved. And then we came up with our online product and a bunch of other things. And now, you know, at last year we had our best year. This year, not so much. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Be careful. We, we yeah, Not so know, much we, yet yeah, as of yeah, almost yeah. April. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, we're going to come back from this as strong totally. that our country's been in a long, long time since 9-11, you know. I completely agree with you yeah. there. But so that's kind of what, what, what got this, you know, got me to do this is I'm like, I feel like I'm uniquely suited to do this. I have my time in the teams, I have my time in the streets, I have my time, um, you know, in Boston, 
you know, uh, as a cop. And then I had, you know, some corporate executive, you know, executive protection. I felt like, hey, I think I can do this. And I looked around and I saw how everyone was doing it. And it was all this shock and awe, role players, airsoft. And I'm like, no one's going to learn that way. And they're never going to sustain it. No way. No, that's like who the heck is going to put their people through that? No one. No one no is. One. Especially, you're not going to put a, a, a woman that's been teaching for 35 years. Uh, you're not going to put her in flex cuffs and put her on the ground. And it's Unless just, you're a, there is a program out there that gets sued a lot that puts teachers against the wall and executes them. Really? So they know what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's wow. just absolutely ridiculous, dude. There, I mean, the lack of emotional or, you know, EQ yeah. out there in this industry is crazy because you get a bunch of cops and military guys who don't have any EQ. Well, I, <laughs> I remember when I, you know, when I left Blackwater, I, I started my own organization and, and was doing some consulting. And, and I remember, like, I quickly realized, man, you know, getting people to begin thinking about uh, an industry that they actually pay lower than their uh, janitorial services, mostly, uh, yeah. you know, how are you going to elevate their consciousness to uh, one, accept the potentiality of, of the worst possible scenario, but then also to, you know, to make it an everyday part of their conversation, right? To, to, yeah. to, it, to where it becomes not a threat emotionally, but to where it becomes a responsibility and, and to their people. And that's a trickery thing to do. How, what, what makes Trident different than everybody else in your approach? It's, it's empathy is a part of everything we do, right? I'm not training a bunch of, you know, military operators. I'm training teachers secretaries, you know, um, you know, a bunch of people and, and I'm going to put it really simple. I'm teaching them how to kill people. Right. In the worst case scenario, I teach them how to barricade. Mm -hmm. I teach them how to do all the other things, but in the worst case scenario, I have to teach them how to, you know, where to stab somebody with a pair of scissors in their hand. Right. And I got to say it in a way that doesn't scare the shit out of them. <laughs> Excuse my language. Yeah, no, right. So, <laughs> so I don't ever word it that way, right? I word it in a way that you know, our, our, you know, we don't call it attack; we call it defend for use of force reasons, right? Because you are defending your life and the life of others. That's noble, right? And we just really start incorporating a, a bunch of different cues along the way, and we take time. We do a slow warm. They have to know, right, because we, everybody who walks into one of our classes or takes our course walks in with baggage, political baggage. We're the most divided country we've ever been in the history of the world, right? And that comes with them, right? And I'm teaching a subject that has got a bunch of landmines all over it, from profiling to, you know, combatives to, you know, Domestic violence in the work. I mean, just literally a million things that can make someone offended in a society that made it makes it a full-time job to be offended. <laughs> so the only way I'm able to deal with that is to show them the why, right? To show them the why and why I do this. So that's why that video that you see on my YouTube page, they have to know that I'm doing this because I care. If they know that I'm doing this because I care and I'm doing it because I want this to be there for them in the darkest hour and I don't try to rush it they're willing to lower their guard and engage and take on and engage in a discussion to take on what I say. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've changed. I don't know how many people we don't have a single complaint. Yeah. Like a 
point like seven five, very highly recommend. You could give away free ice cream and not get that because yeah, someone's going to be lactose intolerant and are on a diet and they're going to be offended. Yeah, they are. Right. So teaching those concepts by coming across with empathy, say that I'm doing this because I care to you and then doing this, you know, a frog who jumps into a boiling pot jumps out. If you put it in there and you let it cook, slowly warm up, they'll stay in it. Right. And that's basically what I have to do is I have to navigate these very dark waters, very dark subjects in a way that doesn't scare the crap out of the average person. And in a way, and do it in a way to where they can see it once and know what to do. Like too many people get too technical. It's got to be instinctive. It's got to be so easy that I can do it. Right. And not only so, it's so easy that, a, you know, a 15 year old with an attention uh, span of two seconds can watch it and know, okay, I need to know, I know what I need to do. You know, and that's, that's the part where it's going to be simple, instinctive. It has to pass the smell test. And, you know, and I think we've hit the sweet spot. I, you know, I think it's to, to transition back to what we're facing right now. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as people are, are really beginning to maintain are really trying their best to maintain a, a sense of calm, a sense of unity, a sense of collectivism. Hey, we're all in this together. But uh, for obvious reasons, there are a, a certain number of criminals that uh, do still exist. They, they're, uh, you know, unfortunately for them, their their jobs got even harder, right, or even easier, depending upon the way you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but is there a sense of because um, like I, I saw. On uh, one guy I follow on YouTube, MRA guy, he's showing, he posted a, a video where the Dallas police said, we're no longer going to respond to break-ins. We're no longer going to do this. I saw it in Cleveland, the same thing happened. You just referenced that a, a bunch of uh, gun-toting maniacs from Maine uh, cut down a large tree to barricade an individual who had been supposedly tested positive for coronavirus uh, to make sure he stayed in his home. Um, as these trends start to tick up, as, as they do within any society that's facing uh, extreme measures either against them, whether from a, a lockdown perspective or from an emotional perspective, um, the, the propensity for violence grows. Right. What are some ideas that people can slowly, as you say, as the frog warms in that pot of water, what are some ideas that people can begin processing at home? and on their blocks, uh, in their smaller enclaves within their communities. Yeah. So mutual aid agreements with your neighbors is going to be huge. Wow. Right. Finding people around you that if the police can't get there and you got to break in, you know, you need to be able to call on people that are going to come scare or help scare away this person. Right. That is, Minus the firearms. Now, I always, you know, I tell everyone, if you don't have a firearm in your house, shame on you, um, because um, they exist and the bad guys will have them, right? So what's your plan if you don't, right? If you don't have a firearm, what is your plan with your, when you don't? And a lot of my anti-gunners have like a Louisville slugger right next to the thing. They, they think they're Negan. They think yeah. they're Negan, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they think they're going to turn into Babe Ruth. <laughs> and they think they're going to literally, you know, they think it's kinder to beat somebody slowly to death with a bat than, than to shoot them. Shoot like, like there's no good way to go. 
No. Right. Right. No. Or they're going to stab them 30 times to put them down. So, you know, just really gradually walking them through that and saying, listen, you know, you're going to have to fight for your life at some, at some point of this, if this situation unfolds for you. And, you know, so you've got mitigation things you can do. Bar learning the skill of barricading is one of the most vital ones you can possibly do. Barricading will help you with a, with a active shooter. It'll help you with a home invasion. It'll help you when your domestic abuser and come home drunk again. And that's when he beats you. It'll help you when your special needs child is now bigger and stronger than you and is in a violent fit and you need to hold out for the cavalry. Right. These are life skills now, like changing a tire. You better know how to barricade. You better have thought about it beforehand and you better put furniture in the right place to make sure that you can do it. And it's easy. It's just don't decorate your room like it's feng shui. Right. <laughs> just have some thought when you place your stuff there and then have a plan. Right. If you've got young kids, your kids aren't going to be disciplined to wake up at two in the morning. Right. You're going to have to make their room the room you barricade in. Mm -hmm. Right. And then coming up with plans and rehearsing with your family what you're going to do in these situations, right? And it's, it can't be, hey, it's always two in the morning and we're all gonna go here because it may happen at 10 a.m. What's we, your go word? Yeah, we What's have, your go word? What, we have a truckload of day, day robberies, day break-ins where- That's the most common yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Right? right, and now that the police know they're not responding, everyone's guards down during the day, Mm -hmm. You know, and so it's like, what is your firearm up in the safe going to do for you during that? Yeah. Nothing. If it's not, not on you, like, <laughs> it might as well be, a, it might as well be in Africa. I, I've got. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> you know. oh, my 1980s uh, uh, Outward Bound Rambo knife. I thought yeah. I was going to bring the Outward Bound. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, it might as well be far away. So mutual aid agreements uh, with people to say, hey, you know, somebody who's close that you can count on. Um, just like you, it's kind of the same thing you do is, hey, I'm leaving town for a trip. Can you look out for my family? Yeah. And they exchange no texts and all that stuff. But if these things, if this starts really ramping up and you live close to a city, like there's, there's two vulnerabilities. You have the riot, roving, Right. Problems that Mobs. are going to happen in the city. Yeah. And, you know, that one second after book is great. That whole series, there's three in that series that are great. If you want another one to read, there's a series by A, it's called A American, Angry American. Mm -hmm. And it's the Coming Home series or something like that. It's great. They're both EMPs. Yeah. Um, the thing that makes this incident so challenging is that all the infrastructure is there and people didn't take it serious enough because life didn't change enough to warrant right. that shock. Right. Yep. So, um, so anyways, coming up with your mutual aid agreements, coming up with, you know, you know, staging firearms in places in a safe way if you have kids, you know, there's enough furniture out there now with magnets and this and that and thumbprints to do all that. What you're really going to do because now they're just coming to your door and they're kicking in your front door during the day. Yeah. Right. They pull up, they rent a truck. Right. And then they come up and they do it in a truck or they steal a truck and they do it. The thing that I think is going to be the next thing we're going to see is carjackings galore, particularly yeah. for delivery personnel. Yep. Huge. Right, people? Yep. Because they're carrying like what right now is in your average UPS truck. Think of the wealth that's in there. Food, guns, ammo, uh, gun parts. Uh, Toilet paper. Toilet paper, which everybody, <laughs> everybody's ready to kill for the next role of Charmin, right? Right. So 
companies really need to understand that there are some people who are exposed. I do not think because everyone's home right now, I don't think the crime wave, I mean, the stupid crime wave is going to be people breaking into homes because everyone's home. So it's a home invasion. Already yeah. you're looking at serious time. Right. Home invasion, serious time. Burglary, way less time. Mm -hmm. So they're going to break into stores at night. Right. When no one's there, the police aren't going to respond. That's what they're going to do. And then once then what'll happen and reactive, the companies will hire security at night. So then they'll start going to rural places. Yeah. They'll get people going up and driving somewhere where they won't hear any noise. Like me, I got a, if my, my closest neighbors are five acres away, right. That no one will know if anything goes down here unless there's shots. Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, how do the businesses, what, what are your recommendations for businesses preparing? businesses need to get security personnel period right and they need to train people right now right like so their domestic violence already in europe is off the charts right now so you're you're they literally have turned their pharmacies into battered women's shelters in wow. germany uh and italy right now because what's happening tension tension brings out the worst in people mm -hmm. um so they they really need to invest and start protecting their employees. And I think right now there's a lot of them sitting at home. You might as well get them some quality training that's going to apply in a home invasion, in uh, a robbery, trying to get their groceries or carjacking right. or, or anything. But they, they need to start looking at that because they're going, like, particularly like we have a lot, like a lot of our, you're really strong in the banking industry, right? Credit unions and banks and all that stuff. But grocery stores right now, right? Look at the tension going on in there. You got to train your people on how to handle and de-escalate these scenarios or when to bolt. Well, and, and you look in these places that, I mean, you come to Southeast Florida and it's like every other person's got a concealed weapons permit, mm -hmm. but yet none of them, you know, less than 2% have any efficient training whatsoever. So. Right. You know, these these confrontations for the last roll of Charmin are going to escalate into, you know, gunfights. Well, that's where I get scared. That, yeah, that's where I get scared and I fear for the Second Amendment, right? This is, this is the time where anti-gunners are buying guns, right? That's what's happening right now. You know, every, the rest of us have already had them. The people flooding the stores right now are the people who've never thought to have one are like, oh, wait a minute, the police aren't answering calls anymore. I probably should get one. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's, it's, when people start getting in armed engagements over, you know, things that are not life and death. Now we haven't seen that. I was at the Virginia, like not too long. It's so funny how the world has changed. Um, the second amendment rally here yeah. in Virginia. How was when that? All that. It was the most peaceful, polite thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's what happens when you have a bunch of armed people around each other. <laughs> yeah. People, people treat each other with some dignity. Dignity and respect. When yeah. that dude's got something that can kill you and you can kill that. I mean, everyone gets real polite. Yeah. Right? Um, it was great. It was a surprise. I think God had his hand on it because the odds of having however many hundreds, 100,000 people, whatever, 70,000, whatever they thought was there, and not having one AD. Incredible. Like, not one AD. Not one. Like, not one getting ready to go, deloading. None reported, because believe me, if there was one, it, it would have been, been on CNN over. day and night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been all over. You know, I'm like, that is a miracle. Yeah, I just is. hope they don't do it again. Because yeah. I would have counted that two days or two times in a row, you know. Yeah, right. You know. But, but yeah, man, I, it, was, it was amazing. I went there to, because I believe in it. I wanted to document it. Um, 
And, um, you know, if I wasn't there, I would have regretted it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I saw it was, you know, I'm in the process of, of just doing research on the second amendment and research on, on, you know, where gun violence comes from, why, why people are violent, why people, uh, why people carry guns, you know, the, the restrictions, uh, you know, all the different laws, but all the different issues, the, the mental health issues of it. And, and to see that experience uh, and, and to really, you know, to see the human condition at its best was so powerful and so positive that it, it, it almost lets you realize that, hey, there is a contingency of Americans that really believe in what the country represents. Uh, and, they're, and they're not right wing. They're not radical. They're not racist. They're not they're not, uh, uh, you know, offensive. They're not, no. uh, you know, the, these are not in, intrusive ideas. These are collective ideas that prop up the ability for the rest of society to function adequately. And I think now more than ever, where we're at, we're going to need a lot of those, those uh, citizens in that capacity. You know, when you start seeing neighborhood watches of, of guys completely kitted out, uh, from midnight to six in the morning all over the country, I, I think it'll, it'll, it'll help ease this, this frantic hysteria that's building, like we talked about. Yeah, there was, it was pretty, you know, I, so there's some things that I, I liked about it and, you know, some, some pedestals I've stood on and, and, and preached. So one is I thought everyone should have concealed carry. I thought it would have been more powerful if you had all those people there concealed carry and everyone would see, hey, that guy looks like my neighbor. That guy is, you know, like everyone around me and my life hasn't changed one bit, right? Meaning that they're all out there. They're all armed. They're saying they're armed. I can't see it. And my life hasn't changed one bit and I'm safer because of it. What kind of, you know, you know, we haven't been a war zone here. Right. You know, Katrina, maybe with the National Guard and some people in New Orleans and around there and all that stuff. But seeing groups of three and five guys jocked up in kit wreaks havoc on on a sheltered society. Yeah. Right. It's that whole EQ thing. It's like they're there. They have power and I have none. It's, it's like telegraphing a sucker punch, kind of, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and, and it's the, the habit that reeks, uh, reeks on in EQ, I think, made it counterproductive. So I'm, I support the Second Amendment a thousand percent, but all these guys, these airsofters who decided to go get jocked up and, you know, a kit that's never touched sand. <laughs> right um you know i thought it was kind of kind of ironic and i wish they had just done like been professionals and just said listen i'm carrying right now i got three rifle i got three firearms on me right now and you don't even know and it's not affecting you one bit yeah. so leave my second amendment alone yeah what do you think about that you know i i it, i i think that's the absolute appropriate way but again we we have a propensity to to uh, elicit the most uh, dramatic uh, responses possible when we're trying to make our point instead of building up to it, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, but that's just us. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. Is, do you think that America's going to come out of this um, and, and, and really uh, take heed the lessons we're learning, right? Dependency on China, 
um, um, the necessity for uh, guns and ammunition and training facilities, more security training, a heightened sense of, of, of how vulnerable we are. Is that, is that going to be a positive gain or, or are we going to see a, a radical backlash depending upon how dramatic this gets? Well, depending on how this unfolds, one, I'll tell you how I think it's going to unfold. Okay. Um, awesome. I think that we've got three to six months of hard living ahead of us. Okay. I tend to agree more on the six. Yeah, me too. Okay. Um, worst case scenario, 18 months. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, I think on the backside of this, you know, I'm not an economist, you know, can't do calculus, <laughs> but um, what my feelings are on this is that we're going to be stronger for it because we're going to fix, like something happened that none of us were paying attention to it. Well, I, I've always bought American and I've always bought the hammer that was three times as expensive because I refuse to send money overseas if I can keep it home. And I, I understood the consequences of that, but I'm, that's just who I am, right? A lot of people, they will always buy the cheapest stuff because that's available to them and et cetera. We had have to get unaddicted to cheap junk from China, mm -hmm. right? And business is, capitalism is always gonna go the cheapest, greediest way possible. And I'm a capitalist, okay? But that's just the way it is. If I can make it here for this and have this profit margin or here and have this profit margin, I'm going to go there because I don't have a responsibility to society. I have a responsibility to the balance sheet, right? And capitalism is right 99% of the time. This is a case where it's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it, you know, you know, Amazon and all these other companies out there have displaced their jobs and displaced, displaced the American worker to go over and, and make these things. And, in places where they hate us, right? China, it does not, I don't understand. They're our number one enemy in the world. Everyone talks about Russia, it's China. And if you want to talk about a, a government that's the most racist, evil government ever, you're looking at them, right? They have concentration camps where they put Muslims right now. They have organ farms over there for people. You know, I mean, it is truly terrifying and horrible. Mm -hmm. um, but we sacrificed America for the profit of super companies and i really believe we need to bring them home like our 97 percent was one number i heard of our farm of our antibiotics being produced in china how is why are we hearing about that now why isn't there somebody screaming about that 10 years ago right that's a national security interest like being able to build things here that we need to be independent like we we all did this great big push for the independence on energy well, energy is one part of the equation. Manufacturing is another part, right? And, you know, and, it, and I think, you know, this is going to be, at the end of this, a boom of American manufacturing that is going to lift the middle class up like never before. That's cool. You know, that's my hope for this. I really yeah. think that we're going to go back to building stuff again, man. And so. when we go back to building stuff again, you're going to empower, you know, people to, to make a better life for themselves like never before. That's a, that's a beautiful place, man. That's a it is, man. It I, is. 
I, I support that 100%, my brother. Yeah, and I, and you know, and I just, you know, I hope, and it, it was, it hasn't happened yet, right? Do you remember the day after 9-12, after 9-11, yeah. so 9-12, all the flags, all the camaraderie, there was no party lines, there's no none of that. I hoped in the beginning that this is it. This is going to be the catalyst that heals us. But the media and social media are not letting it happen, man. No, not at they all. Re they reopen that wound every day at every chance they can, and it just breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, well, you see in Yeah, that's, that's why we do what we do, right? Yeah, Is we're, exactly. we're, <laughs> we're We are perpetual corpsmen always trying to pack those societal exactly, wounds of consciousness, right? Yeah. Amen. I mean, Think about how awesome social media can be with this. Like your great grandma or your grandma in a nursing home who can't be anyone. That's the best of social media that your grandkids saying hi to her on there. Right. And it's literally as good as it gets. And then you have politicians using this and media outlets using for the darkest of reasons. And, you know, I just, I just really hope we all get a little kinder. I hope we all, you know, get yourself squared away first and then everything extra, you got to help another person around you. Amen. You know what I'm saying? I do. Get your base set and then everything after your base is set is helping as many people as you can. Amen. In my opinion. Amen. Well, listen, Jason, can you just give us a, a, a real quick, uh, before we, we, we end this, can you give us a, a real quick overview of what, what Trident Shield does uh, and then what you offer for people uh, yeah. and, what, where, and where they can find it. Yeah, so we are an emergency preparedness training and consulting company. So we do everything from active shooter, active assailant training uh, to writing emergency operations plans slash crisis management plans, whatever you want to call them. There's like 15 acronyms out there for them. We also do security side assessments. We do emergency consulting. You know, I have retainers from multiple companies where I serve as their kind of risk officer, where when something goes down, they call me and I help them solve their problems. Um, we also have a uh, podcast called Locking Shields that is designed to do, to help solve problems. It's designed to give them access to a consultant to literally help them teach them how to barricade, what weapons they should pick, how to handle, you know, anything they could possibly think of, um, you know, and also tell their story, right? To, you know, because everyone right now is alone. Yeah. And what we want to do is we want to bring everyone's story out and show that people aren't suffering alone. We're all going through this challenge together. And we really just want um, to share that story. And then if they have any challenges to solve it as a community, because none of us know all the answers. Amen to that. And where can people uh, find you? They can find us at tridentshield.net. They can find us on YouTube at Trident Shield. They can find us on Facebook on Trident Shield. I go live every day at 9 p.m. Uh, Monday through Friday. I just changed that. I needed two days off. Yeah. So 9 p.m. <laughs> live. Yeah, yeah. Go get wet, not, hey. 9 p.m. I'm trying to do Facebook Live and YouTube Live at the same time with this restreaming software. We'll see if it works. We'll see if it works. Yeah, let me know how it works, all right? I keep Yeah, we'll do. People want me to go live, but <laughs> Can I can I just I want to say something about you, man. I you know, and you brought it up and it's the Corman in you. 
And, you know, uh, I just find you, you know, watching your work, you're a giver and you're a healer and don't ever lose that man. Cause you're really making a difference out there. Ah, uh, Jason, thank you, brother. It means the world to me. It really sure. does. I, I, you know, the hardest, need more healers, bro. The hardest, takers. the hardest thing in life is when you, you know, you, you, you get so lost in a space where you, you, you forget why, why God put us here in the first place and, you know, living up to that, that, that responsibility and to kind of walk that apostolic life and, and, you know, is, is, is hard and that's why people don't do it. And, but I, I think, as long as we can do whatever we can to give people, like you said, that hope that it's worth it. It's worth the fight every day. I think that then uh, we, we get a little closer to that salvation that we've been searching for since we were young men. Yeah. Yep. So definitely. Well, thanks for having me, man. This was awesome. I could talk to you for days. Yeah. Thank you so much. God bless you, Jason. And uh, God bless you and your yeah, family as well. Take care. Bye.